Um, as we look at the passage this morning, I, I just want to throw this out. First, obviously, you know this, and I think Andy did a great job of reminding us of this last week, is that as you read through the book of Colossians, it's so jam-packed with so much depth and, and theology and, and richness. But what we need to remember as you read through the book of Colossians is, is what Paul's trying to tell this church is, guys, it's not about what you know. It's about how what you know changes the way you live. Because Jesus changes everything. Every relationship you have, every earthly relationship you have, every thought that you have, every action that you do, every place that you go should be affected by what Jesus Christ has done for you. And that's what it means to to set your eyes and to, to seek the things that are above and to be so focused on Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ that everything else kind of fades away. That being said, when you get to this part of Colossians 4, you may read these verses and go, why? I mean, I'm guessing the passage that we read together this morning, none of you have your life verses from these verses. Um, I mean, to be honest, we, we don't even know how to pronounce a lot of the names that I'm going to read this morning. Even worse than that, we, we don't even know if some of these people are guys or gals. So, so when you look at this, we, we tend to get to sections of Scripture like this, or honestly, the genealogies. Um, many other passages in Scripture, we tend to get there and just kind of treat them with, with like a, a cast off. And we treat them, you know, we treat them, we treat them like that little uh, notification that pops up before you're allowed to download an app. You agree to the terms? Of course I do. Just because you want the app to download. And that's the way we treat these verses sometimes. It's like, what, what could possibly be here? This is my encouragement to you this morning. This is God's Word. It's a Scripture. And so it's here for a purpose, for a reason. And so I'm sure as we go through this, we're going to pull out a lesson or three from a passage like this. So um, why don't we jump in and see what kind of damage we can do together. Starting in verse 7. I've got two weeks I haven't preached, so you guys could be here till two. So you should have probably gone with the whole let's pray and go home thing. But that's all right. So as we look at this beginning of this passage, starting in verse 7, the first chunk of the final portion here, um, Paul is introducing us to his team and he says this, look at verse 7. I'm going to kind of walk through each verse, stop, make comments on him, and kind of talk about who each guy is. He starts at verse 7. He says, okay, Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and so that he may encourage your heart. So, so here we've got this guy named Tychicus. If you're going to look at Team Paul, you're going to look at Tychicus and be like, that, that's Paul's boy. That's the guy who Paul is just, we, they are locked in together. Because you see Tychicus mentioned in other places in the, in the New Testament. You see here, he's carrying the letter to the Colossians, this letter that Paul's written. In Ephesians, you see that Tychicus is the one who brings the letter to Ephesus to give to the church there at Ephesus. Um, and, and what you find when you find him in, in the book of Titus is that Tychicus isn't just the mailman. I mean, nothing against mailmen, right? But what they do is they just deliver things, right? You hope that's all they're doing is delivering things. Tychicus isn't just the mailman. Tychicus is a friend. He's a brother. It says that he is a servant. He's a minister. When you look at Titus chapter 3, you see that he is one of the two final choices that Paul has made uh, to replace Titus as pastor in Crete. So Tychicus is going to be a potential pastor. But here's the part that we see here in the book of Colossians. Tychicus wasn't just the, the news anchor who's showing up and saying, okay, let me tell you what's happening with Paul right now. Let me lay out for you what's happening with Paul. He's in prison. This He's not just the news anchor. He didn't just come to deliver the news. He came to be an encouragement to these people. 
He had the personality that he was there to comfort them, to show up to a group of people who needed a soft touch from somebody and some, that somebody needed to be able to be trusted. And Paul sent them Tychicus. So, so on team Paul, you got this fellow named Tychicus. You keep going in verse 9, it says, Tychicus is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you, and they'll tell you about everything here. Uh, Patrick talked about this two weeks ago. Onesimus is an escaped slave who now knows and loves Jesus Christ. So somehow, after escaping from the house of Philemon, Onesimus has come into contact with Paul. He's heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's given his life to Christ. He has fallen in love with Jesus. And now his primary identity is no longer a slave. His primary identity is that he is a faithful and dear brother in Jesus. Think about that for a moment. He went from the lowest of lows, a man who actually, this may not even be his real name, it's just given to him because he was a slave. And now his primary identity is, is somebody who's one of us. And you find out how much Paul really loved this guy when you read through the book of Philemon, which you, you folks did a couple of weeks ago. As you look at the, the book of Philemon, you hear Paul saying to Philemon, the slave owner who Onesimus had run away from, he's saying, Philemon, I am sending to you my son, Onesimus. And, and I'm not just sending him to you, but as he comes, I'm sending you my very heart. So, so you hear this, this deep compassion that Paul has for this, this young man named Onesimus. The next one on the team is this fellow in verse 10 named Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. He sends you greetings. He says, Aristarchus is that friend you have in your crew that it happens to be with you every time something crazy happens. You could stop for a moment. Most of us are like, got it. I have a friend who's now passed away whose name is Chris. It seemed like every time Chris and I were together, something insane would happen. We wouldn't be able to comment on it at that moment until later we'd be walking away and whispering under our breath to each other, did that just happen? Aristarchus. So what crazy happened to Aristarchus? Well, it's one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 19, I'll give you a little background here. Paul is busy preaching the gospel in Ephesus. And it's going remarkably well. And as Paul is preaching, he's also casting out demons. And other people are seeing Paul having this, this effective demon-casting-out ministry, and they're jealous. And so these, these fellas named particularly the sons of Sceva, which that right there should set you off. It's going to go badly for them. Their dad's name is Sceva. Um, happy Father's Day. <laughs> um, his, who was a Jewish high priest. They saw Paul doing all these things, and these boys were like, wait, I get it. I get it. It's about this name Jesus. And so they come into contact, Acts chapter 19, they come into contact with someone who's demon-possessed, and these guys walk up to this fellow who's demon-possessed, and they say, we, we, I'm going to quote it specifically, they say to them, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches to come out of this man. And the demon-possessed guy looks at these fellows and says, okay, hold on a second. I know Jesus, heard about Paul, who are you? And then there's a fight. It says this demon-possessed man and the demons in him go after these guys who are trying to cast out the demons in the name of Jesus because of Paul, who are just faking it but trying to get notoriety, and this fight breaks out, and it says this. Let me, let me read this for you so you get a kind of a gist of how the, the fight actually goes. The evil spirit um, jumped on them, overpowered them all, prevailed against them, so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a fight, but if you go into the fight wearing clothes, <laughs> and at the end of it, you have none, you've lost, okay? <clears throat> Excuse me, so these guys are overpowered by this man, and, and, and the word spreads, <clears throat> Excuse me. and all these people begin turning to Jesus, and it says, and many who had become believers they came confessing and disclosing their practices because they had all been practicing magic and they collected these books and they burned them in front of everyone and there was great value in these books and, and after this bonfire of, of magic books are being burned, this, this, this fella <laughs> gathers his friends and he says this, his name's Demetrius, and he says this, um, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from the business of making silver shrines of Artemis, the, the false idol. And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that the, no, 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 this is what Paul's saying, gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business is going to be discredited. See, so you have to understand is that Demetrius, the silversmith, would make these small graven images and sell them, and they were making great profit from it. He says, not only do we run the risk that our business may be discredited, but of course that the temple, the great goddess Artemis, may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one of all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius is freaking out because he's seeing his business plan fall apart because Paul's preaching of the gospel is going well. And now people are no longer buying the false images that he's crafting. And so no longer is he making money to stuff in his pockets. And he gathers all the people together and says, if this doesn't continue, we will be bankrupt. And you know how the people respond? Exactly as you think they would respond. They riot. All of these people come together and they are whipped into a frenzy because of the thought that they may lose their financial status. And they grab a few men. One of the men that they grab and drag into the, the Colosseum is Aristarchus. Paul is trying to get in to help begin a verbal defense against the crowd and his, his disciples and those who are around him and other leaders of the, the town of Ephesus are begging him and imploring him, Paul, don't go in there. It's just going to end badly for everybody. And they, they keep Paul out. But inside is this fellow named Aristarchus and Gaius, another fellow. And, and, and the crowd, it says, for hours. They don't even know what they're there for. They just know they're angry. Does that sound familiar to anybody? They just know they're angry, and so they're getting louder and louder and chaotic, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, the, the city clerk calms the crowd down and says, what are we doing? If we, if we continue this, we run the risk of being charged with rioting. There's no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance if there is a charge against um, Arist Aristarchus, I'll get it right, and Gaius then, and Paul, then, then bring it to court. But this mob mentality must end. And as soon as the city clerk stops talking, the people realize the foolishness of their way and they slowly trickle out. Paul, Gaius, and Aristarchus continue on their journey. And I believe it's at that time that as they're continuing on their journey, Aristarchus and Paul and Gaius are all elbowing each other like, did you see that? That was crazy. You know, what's interesting is where is Aristarchus here in our passage in Colossians chapter 4? He's in prison with Paul because they've run together and they're not backing down. 
You continue in verse 10, so Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, Mark is, a, is an interesting character to interject into this, this postlude that Paul is writing to the Colossians, because if you know the story of Mark, he also goes by the name John Mark. As Barnabas' cousin, uh, John Mark wrote the book of John, the Gospel of John. John Mark also, um, uh, in Acts chapter 13, joined Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. But you don't get very far into the first missionary journey, and things get a little heated and a little difficult, and John Mark, who is a young man, it says he deserts them. He leaves them. It was a little too much for him at his age. Fast forward some years, Paul and Barnabas are discussing with each other that first missionary journey, and Paul says, let's go back to all those churches we visited that first time, and let's see how they're doing. And Barnabas says, Paul, great idea. I'll call John Mark and have him come with us. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 he's not coming with us. Now, remember, he, he, he deserted us when we needed him to assist us. And, and the way Acts 13 describes it, it talks about this sharp division that arose between Paul and Barnabas, so much so that Paul ended up traveling with Silas instead of Barnabas, and Barnabas ended up traveling with John Mark. There's people every once in a while that you can't work with. And Paul came to that hard realization, and Barnabas wanted to work with John Mark. The sharp division arose. Paul went his way. Barnabas went with his if that's where the story ended, it'd be tragic and immature, wouldn't it? Beautifully, you get to 2 Timothy 4, and Paul says to Timothy, send John Mark to me. He is so useful for me right now. So as John Mark aged and matured, he became um, a useful servant for Paul, a useful um, voice for the gospel, and he became one that people depended on. In fact, so Paul here says to the church at Colossae, if John Mark comes, then, then receive him, welcome him. It's almost as if Paul knows that because of his separation from John Mark at one time, that could still influence people's decision on how they treated John Mark, and he wanted to make sure John Mark was getting a fair deal. So John Mark is part of the team there for Paul. Look at verse 11. These are all the people who are giving greetings. Verse 11, uh, uh, Aristarchus and Mark, they give their greetings. Verse 11, so does Jesus, who is called Justice. Paul wants to make sure they know he's talking about this guy, Justice, not Jesus the Messiah, okay? These have, they, uh, sorry, let's try it again. These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a great comfort to me. So, so Jesus, the one who is called Justice, is one of the fearless Jewish guys that's on Paul's team. Let me, let me explain this to you. We don't know a lot about Jesus who is called Justice specifically, but the fact that he is a Hebrew who is willing to stand up in front of other Hebrews and testify that Jesus is the Messiah is a demonstration and an evidence of a man who is fearless. It didn't go well when a Jew stood in front of another Jew and tried to convince them that the Messiah had come. You need proof? Stephen, Acts chapter 6 and 7, what happened to him? He was stoned to death because he stood in front of the Jews and tried to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul, how did they treat him when he tried to confess that Jesus was the Messiah? They stoned him within an inch of his life. 
Now, you just read the book of Acts and you see it happen time and time and time again. But this man, Jesus, who is called Justice, was one of the fearless ones who stood in the face of adversity and and wouldn't relent. He just continued calling on Jesus, who is the Messiah, and teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And what Paul says about this man is because of his boldness, because of his courage, they have been a great comfort to me. You continue on Team Paul, and you get the team prayer warrior named Epaphras. Look at verse 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, sends you greetings. He's also wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. So Epaphras is the fellow who actually planted this church in Colossae. So, so Epaphras, as Paul is talking about him, says, this is your, your friend, this is your family member, this is your neighbor. He is here with me, and I'm going to tell you about this fella. He is praying over and over. And this isn't just this, this little quaint prayer. This is, this is a wrestling in his soul. This will give you the picture. The Greek word for him wrestling in prayer for the Colossians is, is agnizomai, which what we get our word agonize from. The picture of of Epaphras praying is this gut-wrenching energy that he's just just dumping out on behalf of other people. He's praying that, well, these people, give them the strength to stand firm. Help them to continue in their faith, even though all of these other angles are coming at them and people are trying to deceive the Colossians and trying to lead them astray. God, would you give them the ability and the faith to stand firm, to not shift, to understand that in Christ, they are seen as accepted by God and fully complete. He wants them to be assured of these things. What's interesting about Epaphras is he's not just concerned about his home church. He says he's also praying for the church at Laodicea, which is a, a neighboring city. He's also praying for the church in Hierapolis, which is right near that area. It's, it's amazing to me that while Epaphras is focused on the relationships back home, he's also focused on local churches that would impact his own people in that area. So let me, I'm going to do a, a big application thing at the end of this, but, but let me make a quick application here. I, I know this may shock you, but Uniontown Bible Church is not the greatest church in America. I know you'll be okay. Right? Maybe next year if we did that no message, pray, go out and eat barbecue, we may be the best church in America then. <laughs> but we're not. We are one of thousands of God's local assemblies who are simply trying to push into the darkness with the light of Christ. And we don't always get it right. And so shame on us for not agonizing in prayer over other local churches who are busy about the work of the gospel too. Shame on us for standing in a place of elitism thinking we've got it all together. I promise you we don't. You just stick around for another half an hour, you'll see. It's not hard. May we continue to remember that this isn't a Uniontown-only mission. This is the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell won't be able to stand up when the church runs face forward into the darkness. <clears throat> so then we get to one of my favorite guys on Team Paul, verse 14. Luke, the dearly loved physician. So you got your nerdy doctor hanging out with the boys. 
Luke is the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. Luke did all of the study to get the stories right so that he could lay it out in as, as succinct and as chronological a way as he possibly could. And people were able to learn much from the time of Jesus and the early church. And, and, and so he continued to investigate. Here's the other thing. Luke was not only in, um, interviewing people about what was happening. Luke was a firsthand eyewitness to much of the, many of the events that happened in the book of Acts. Um, you, you get to the place right after. It's actually right after um, Paul and Aristarchus leave uh, Ephesus after the big riot. And they stop in this one town <clears throat> And uh, they, they, they know they have to leave early the next morning. And so Paul is preaching to all the believers who are gathered in this room. It says it's three stories up. And he's preaching and he's preaching and he's preaching. And when you read the story, it says he just kept talking. It's a pastoral thing. It just comes naturally. So you embrace that. So he's talking, talking. But he knows he's leaving the next morning. So he wants to just keep going. And it says that they had candles in the windows so they could see. It was getting close to midnight. And this young man named Eutychus was sitting in the window. Paul was preaching and preaching and preaching. Eutychus is sitting in the window three stories high, and he falls asleep. Not that any of you have ever fallen asleep in church. Eutychus falls out the window and dies. That would put a major wet blanket over the events of the worship service, wouldn't it? But Paul goes down, and the people, understandably, are, are looking, and here's this young man, he's dead, and Paul goes down and says, no, he's, he's just asleep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake him. And Paul performs a miracle, and Eutychus comes back to life. And, and in that whole story, Luke is saying, while well, we were there, and we saw this, and we did this, Luke has placed himself in that story because he was present during the, 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 the miracle of rising of Eutychus. I'm going to tell you a funny story, this is, this is like, uh, yeah, anyway, when... <laughs> When Jordan, he, I have permission to tell the story. When Jordan was three, he was in his Sunday school class, and they were telling stories, and Jordan made a, raised his hand, and the teacher called on him. Jordan's now 20. He raised his hand. He doesn't remember this. We remember it. Jordan raised his hand and said um, something, and, and the teacher was a little surprised, and, Jordan con- and asked some questions. Jordan continued to answer. And so later that afternoon, we were at home, and we received a phone call from Jordan's Sunday school teacher who was very concerned about the story that Jordan had shared. So the Sunday school teacher told us that Jordan in class, while they were talking about Paul and some of the things that Paul had done, said we had a family friend who had died. He had taken like a long fall. And then the doctors brought him back to life. And she said, I kept asking what the friend's name was, but he couldn't remember. And Stephanie and I were perplexed because we know, we would know if that happened, I think. And so we were sitting at dinner that night and we're like, buddy, we heard that you told a story in Sunday school. He's like, yeah, you told me that. I'm like, oh, now the first thing that happens is I get defensive. <laughs> I never told you that. And, and Stephanie got it right away. She was like, oh, See, in devotions the day before, we had read the story of Eutychus, and I had done such a great job telling the story, he thought it was one of our friends. <laughs> so, take the good with the bad. All right, so that was free. So, so four, Luke, the dearly loved physician, he, he, he's part of the team. The other man that's mentioned as part of the team is this fellow named Demas. That's all we know about him. He's just kind of mentioned. Yeah, Demas, he says hello too. It's almost like Demas was standing over Paul's shoulder when he was writing the letter, like, hey, me too. Hey, what about me? Hey, come on, Paul. 
And so Paul's like, all right, Demas says, says hello. Now, where we are in history, reading Scripture, we would read 2 Timothy 4 and hear Paul agonize. He says, I, I need somebody to come visit me because Demas, having loved the world more than he loved me, has abandoned me. That's team Paul. Paul continues with his farewell in verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea, the church or the town that is, is right next to Colossae. Give my greetings to Nympha and the church in her home. So, so let me stop here. So, so Laodicea, it's just a short distance there. And he says, well, I want you to do again. Remember, the church isn't just your local one. It's this, this universal body of Christ who is continuing to share the gospel of Jesus. So, so would you give my greetings to them as you interact with each other? And particularly, I want you to give my greetings to the church that meets at Nympha's house. Now, there's a lot of, not, there's actually not a ton of discussion on this, but let me, let me do a quick language study here for you. As, as you read, virtually, virtually every interpretation and translation of Scripture says, uh, give my greeting to Nympha and the church in her house. The problem is, we don't know in a language level if Nympha is a female name or a male name. Let, let me explain why. In the Greek language, when you put an accent on a word, it actually changes the, the, the gender of that word. And so if the accent is at the end of the name, nympha, then that's masculine, it would be a man. If the accent's on the beginning of the name, nympha, then it would be feminine. Okay, so it should be easy. Let's look at the name and see where the accent is. Well, that's where it gets difficult because original Greek didn't use any accent marks in the writing. So it doesn't help us at all. So then you have to go to the next thing to try to figure out, so is this a masculine or a feminine pronoun? And what you do is you look at the word that occurs just before house. And to nympha and the church in her house. Um, so all of the earliest manuscripts have her. But what has happened over time is I think, and this is, this is purely conjecture, so I should like stand way over here. This is my opinion. I think what happened is as, as history and church history continued on and, and people were wrestling with a woman's uh, responsibility and place in the local church and leadership of men and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is, is that as they began making copies, they, they started getting a little concerned and so they started adding, well, his. So the King James actually says his, which is a very minor um, um, evidence in the, in the transcripts or manuscripts. Some Bible versions cheat and say, give our greetings to Nympha and the church that meets in their house. You wimp. <laughs> let, 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 me, let, me, let me be clear. Um, I think the evidence is strong that he's giving a greeting to a lady named Nympha who lives in Laodicea and a church meets in her home. We don't know anything else about her. She could be a wealthy widow. She could be a, a woman of particularly wealthy means. Uh, she could be a woman like Phoebe in Romans 16, who is a, just a particular great encouragement to all of those who are serving Christ around her. Um, but Paul sends this very warm and specific greeting to her. As I was working on this, uh, I'll be honest, I, I called them wimps for saying there. I actually uh, wimped out a little bit when I did my first draft of this message because, like, man, i got to be careful about talking about women in the church because the men may, like, oh, well, so a woman's supposed to do it. So let me, let me um, go off a little bit. We need to stop freaking out 
when a woman is commended or instructed in Scripture to do something besides sit and be quiet. Every woman is created in the image of God, just like men. Every woman is called to the same ultimate purpose as a man, to bring glory to God. Every woman is called to be a fire-breathing gospel messenger. Every woman is called to take up her cross and follow Jesus. We need to stop thinking that, oh, but if we do this, what's going to end up happening is, okay, let me, let me say this. First, let me speak to the ladies. Ladies, let your light so shine that those around you see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Men, if that scares you, then get off your keister and show them how it's done. Let's not sit back and be like, we can't let women do that because, and then we go home like immediately after service every day and never serve. The call of Christ is equal. Take up your cross and follow Christ. May we be faithful and ferocious and obedient to that call. Now, uh, without going into all of it, there are differences. There are things that God has commanded that should be led by men within his local church. There's things that should be done by women within their local home. There should be things that are done by men in their local home. All of that's there, absolutely true. But that doesn't negate the necessity that women take their relationship with Christ seriously. They're not second class. So let's push for that. So let's continue before I get in more trouble. Now, verse 17, there's an elders meeting tomorrow night. We'll see how that went. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Verse 17, and tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. Again, we don't know anything about Archippus. We know that somehow he's tied together with Philemon and Onesimus and his household. But Paul has a very special message for him, and he takes, like, he takes time from this letter and says, now, specifically, I want you to find Archippus, and I want you to tell him, do what you've been called to do. We don't know what he was doing. We don't know if he was neglecting the gift that had been given to him. We don't know if he was refusing to do the ministry that God had called him to. We just know that Paul said, don't allow anything to take you off your focus. So if you're sitting here, I, I, I don't know how to make application other than this. Do what you've been called to do. Don't allow anything else to distract you. Set your mind, set your heart, and seek the things above. And let your focus be on Jesus and Jesus alone. Nothing else. And continue on, brother. Continue on, sister. Let nothing distract you. Then Paul ends it. This is, I love Paul's endings. I'm going to start stealing his endings. Look at verse 18. All right, I, Paul, I'm writing this greeting with my own hand. Okay, that seems kind of silly, except for you have to understand, it was commonplace for uh, the author to dictate to a secretary who would be writing it all out. And what happens now is at this point in verse 18, Paul says, all right, give me the pen. I'm going to finish this thing off. And he grabs the pen. And he says, I, Paul, am, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Um, remember my chains and, and grace be with you. So, so he signs it in his own. And when he says, remember my chains, please understand this. It's not a pity party for Paul. He's not saying, oh, just remember where I am while you're all out there partying at Father's Day. Here I sit in chains. Uh-uh. Because Paul never complained about being in prison, did he? He always said, I am here because of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It is a joy, it is a privilege to be here. I am reaching people I otherwise would never reach. So, so what he's saying to the Colossians is, when you are praying, remember my chains. Remember what this is all about. Remember to pray that I would have opportunity and open doors to speak of Christ. Don't get distracted. Don't think this is about my comfort. Don't think this is about my gain. This is about Jesus and only Jesus. So let's apply all of that in three minutes. First, you need to be evaluating your personal relationships. Who's on your team? Who's on your team? Who, who fits into each of those spots on your team? When you look at Paul's team, they're fiercely faithful, and they're focused on living like Jesus changes everything. You, 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 can, can, just for, I was talking to Jason about this the other night. Can you imagine the conversations that these guys had when they're sitting around? I mean, think about who's in the room. You've got Paul. You've got Mark, you've got Luke, you've got the, the, the crazy man, uh, Aristarchus, who always gets into trouble, it seems. And as they're sitting around, I'm betting they're not talking about the, the Ravens score. I'm sure they're not talking, as glorious as it is, I said I would follow my sword, the Capitals. Congratulations. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, move on. All right. They're not, they're not talking about the Capitals. They're sitting around talking about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and what's happening around the preaching of the gospel. They're talking about how the church just continues to expand and to grow. Imagine the stories that Paul and Luke, Mark, are able to share with each other. Onesimus. Imagine hearing from the mouth of Onesimus. Paul's friends were encouragers. Paul's friends were pursuing Jesus, and they were encouraging other people to do the same all the while. You need to evaluate your personal relationships, so let me ask you this question. Are you running with people like that? Are you flying around with a flock of fools? Um, so define fools. Well, we'll do that through the series of Proverbs that's coming up in a couple weeks. Um, always complaining always critical, always focused on themselves, always focused on how I feel, what I want, how I think it should go. And it's not just, okay, so, so you're going to be sitting there, and, and, and honestly, anybody that hangs out with me is sitting there like, oh, I hang with Frank, and he's an idiot. Um, so that's not what I mean. I, okay, I, I am. I own that. Okay, embrace that. It's good. Moving on. What I mean is your life is completely saturated with the moronic people who can't see anything past themselves. So when you sit down to a cup of coffee, instead of having conversations like Luke and Mark and Paul and Aristarchus might have and Onesimus, you begin to have these conversations about how everything should be different and how you would do it if you were in charge. And that's the common theme. These people who surround you can tease you into a rage by their cynicism and let me tell you, when somebody's cynical like that, it's easy to get sucked in. You want proof? Just look at social media. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Who are you allowing to speak into your life? One of the things that, that happened over my vacation was I started evaluating how I use social media. And particularly, I'm, I'm not on Facebook a whole lot. My wife is. She just points out the things I need to see. Um, I'm on Twitter um, I have no idea why, because I'm old. That's what my kids say, whatever. But one of the things that stood out to me is, is I, I follow a number of people of tw on Twitter who, um, who are nothing but cynical. 
and they find something to complain about everywhere. They take a word that a, a preacher uses and they expound upon it and assign motive to it so that way it ends up changing the way I view that preacher. So one of the things I decided was the next time, uh, it happened last night, so, I can't, so the last time and the next times, if somebody ends up being cynical on Twitter, that I'm going to go to their Twitter page and I'm going to read their last five or ten tweets. And if that seems to be a theme, then I'm not following them anymore. I don't need that level of cynicism speaking in my life. I am already a sinner who is naturally bent towards cynicism, aren't you? So let's be careful who we surround ourselves with. Are you surrounding yourself with the cynical people? Are you surrounding yourself with the people who are, are so fixated on single issues that they can't see past them? So I, I want to be careful and not name some of them so that you don't think I've been on your Facebook pages this week. <laughs> like I said, I'm not on Facebook. You're okay. But, but what ends up happening is when we get into these single-type issues, it's, it, we're filled with this uninformed passion. And in so doing, we're affecting those other people around us. So imagine if Onesimus sat before Paul and complained the whole time about Philemon and what a jerk he was as a master. That would have had no place because, first of all, Onesimus wouldn't have done it. And secondly, Paul wouldn't have had any time for that. Evaluate your personal relationships. Remember it's about Jesus. So before I jump into this, next week, uh, I'm going to take the last week of our Colossians study to answer questions that I've been asked throughout the series. If you still have questions, you could you can send them to me on Facebook. Um, you, can, <laughs> you can put them on the, the church Facebook page. You can email, email myself, email the office, call the office, however you want to do that. And I, I'm going to take time and I'm going to, I've already got, I think I've got six questions right now to answer. I'm just going to knock out real fast as we look through. Um, but, but, and, and really, next week, we're going to land exactly where we began because you look at how Paul ends the book, it's exactly how he started it. He ends it by saying to the Colossians, grace be with you. He starts the book of Colossians, grace to you. Those are the bookends. He wants the Colossians to remember what grace looks like. He wants us all to remember that this is about Jesus and nothing else. He wants us to remember that, that, that no, no one else is going to move in and take Jesus' place. So for you and I, as we read even that last chunk of the book of Colossians, it's about the ferocious commitment of Jesus Christ to us to bring us from the dead through his death. It is about Jesus Christ giving us the, the, the breath of life when he comes back from the dead. It's about Jesus. Nothing else. No one else. It's about Jesus. Every single relationship I have, it's about Jesus. Nothing else. No one else. Why? Because of the unthinkable price that Jesus paid on the cross for our sins. Because we, we wrestle and understand at times better than others what grace really looks like. A sinless man sent by God to take my place on the cross. That's what it's all about. May it be so this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love for us. God, you are so very good to us, and, and we miss it so many times. Father, I pray for each one of us here today. I pray that in our relationships that we would honor you. Father, that we would, we would truthfully and with integrity evaluate our relationships.
to see if, if we're surrounded by the types of people who push us on to further commitment in Jesus or if they're simply distracting us with things that just don't matter. Father, I pray that each one of us would be overwhelmed with the love that you had for us in Jesus Christ. That we would remember that our lives are about setting our hearts and seeking Christ. Nothing else. Lord, help us to be reminded of what was accomplished on the cross. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his good name I pray. Amen.